unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grand Tamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindu Sun-Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. In 2016, my colleague Ashley J. Tellis published an important paper in which she unpacked Prime Minister Modi's call for India to become a leading rather than a balancing power on the global stage. That paper documented how this call reflected an important change in how India's top political leadership conceived of its role in international politics. In the years since, Ashley and a group of collaborators have been working to flesh out what becoming a leading power would actually mean in practice. Their findings have been published in a new volume, Grasping Greatness, Making India a Leading Power, edited by Ashley, along with his co-editors, Beck Debroy and Raja Mohan. Ashley, of course, is my colleague at Carnegie, where he holds the Tata Chair for Strategic Affairs. And to discuss the book and some of its core arguments, I am pleased to welcome Ashley back to the show. Ashley, welcome back and congrats on the book. Well, thank you, Melan. It's great to be back with you here once again. So I want to take you back to what now seems like ancient history. Uh, 2014, uh, Prime Minister Modi is newly ensconced in the Prime Minister's office. And even at that early date, he had foreshadowed his ambition that India should be a leading rather than a balancing power. And this has become something of a kind of late motif for his foreign policy more generally. You know, you you note at the outset of this book that uh, as much attention as this has gotten, it's just not an entirely new construct. In fact, you say that Modi's ambition is in some sense a return to Nehruvian ambition. And I'm wondering if maybe we could start here by just asking you to contrast, you know, the two ambitions of these very ambitious prime ministers to have India play a much more important role, but in slightly different ways, perhaps? I think it's actually striking uh, to see the similarities uh, between Nehru and and Modi. And of course, there are differences, and I'll come to the differences uh, in a second. But let me just start with the similarities, because for two individuals who are cut from such radically different cloths, uh, it's quite amazing to see the convergence, at least on this central question, of India, its ambitions, and its role in the international system. So let me start with the similarities. I think both leaders see India as a great country that is destined to play a great role internationally. Uh, Nehru was writing about this even before independence. And as you pointed out, uh, you know, very early in Modi's first term, uh, he begins to talk about the ambition for India to become a leading power. Both leaders desire that India become a leading power. So it's, it's, it's very clear that they want India to become a great power. Both are also remarkably realistic. Uh, both recognize that India is not a true great power yet. Uh, but they desire that India play that role on the global stage. Uh, despite its weaknesses. Now, precisely because there is a realism that pervades both visions, Nehru's and Modi's, I think both also are united by the fact uh, that they see the imperative of India employing whatever strengths it has at the moment. So for Nehru, the big strength was India's moral stature, uh, India as the leader uh, of the uh, decolonized countries. 
And India, with its model vision, particularly during the Cold War, when the world was sort of divided into two blocks, right? For Modi, I think it's diplomatic activism uh, without an excess of moral coloration. Uh, in fact, a, a quite striking emphasis on raison d'etat that is quite, uh, uh, you know, removed from the tradition of the Congress and the legacy that Nehru left behind. Now, this doesn't mean that Modi does not reference Indian ideals, but in his practice, uh, it is very clearly uh, driven by, by realist considerations of power. So the first difference I would say is, whereas for Nehru, acting on the world stage uh, had an ineluctable moral quality. I think for Modi, acting on the world stage is defined fundamentally in terms of India's sort of raw interests. Now, there's also another difference, I think. For uh, Nehru, uh, India was characterized by quite significant material weaknesses. It was a period in time where even as India was playing this global role as a leader of the non-line movement, India was living on, uh, you know, American aid, on assistance uh, from the Soviets, and so on and so forth. That world has now, uh, that world has now turned. Uh, Modi is playing uh, on a stage where India is much more capable. And so in that sense, he has more resources uh, to play with. But when you sort of, you know, look at both these individuals comparatively, what I find most striking at the end of the day is their sheer ambition for their country, their conviction that this country is going to matter, and that it should be accorded by other powers in the international system, uh, the recognition of its eminence. I think that is true for both, uh, for both Nehru and Modi. So, you know, one of the first things that comes to mind, of course, is what is a leading power, right? And, and, you, and you tackle this directly and you contrast the terms leading power and great power. And so I was hoping you can tell us the difference because Modi, even though he talks a lot about India's leading power, uh, seems to be driven really more by great power ambition. Is that right? I think that is absolutely correct. And the reason why I spend some time in the book sort of parsing the term, uh, first, because it's an unorthodox term, right? It's not sort of part of the standard literature. And I think the reason why Modi and subsequently Dr. Jai Shankar have talked about India as a leading power is because I think they do not want India to be accused, uh, you know, harboring an excess of ambition, Right. So there is an attempt to sort of um, recognize that there are certain consequences to the words you use, particularly in the international community, and that a kinder, humbler, gentler India is likely to receive a warmer reception uh, with respect to its ambitions than an India that is, you know, forthright in your face and demanding a seat at the table. In many ways, I think the mental contrast is with China which, you know, has claimed to be a great power and has been demanding all the prerogatives. But, but, but the point remains that whatever phraseology is used, what they really mean is that they want India to become a genuine power. 
And you see this constantly in the references that Indian leaders use to the realities of multipolarity, or at least to the desire for multipolarity. Uh, What does multipolarity mean? Multipolarity essentially means a world populated by a small number of poles. They think of India as being a legitimate member of a multipolar system. So in a sense, one of the governors of the international system, uh, as it were. And they don't use the word great power, but essentially they want India to be a rule maker. They want India to be one of the defining elements of the international system and not beholden or uh, operating at the sufferance of other states. You know, one of the most interesting sections of your chapter is the debate over the quest for greatness, right? And, And both from the left and from the right, there's been a lot of skepticism, not just about India's ability to be a great power, but actually whether it should even aspire to be one in the first place. You know, unpack for us, if you could, you know, what motivates some these various strands of skepticism? So the, I found that actually to be one of the most striking elements of the Indian debate, right? If you go to any Western power, uh, sort of crudely speaking, and asked, you know, the elites in that country whether their country ought to be a great power. My suspicion is that there would be near universal agreement that if the circumstances permitted it, their country should be a great power. In India, I think what is striking is the degree of, you know, divergence of opinion on this question. And I think it goes in part to the core reality that India is still uncomfortable with power and as a civilization has always had an ambivalence about the exercise of power. And to my mind, this is actually one of the quite striking elements of India's strategic culture. But apart from these rarefied sort of, you know, uh, themes, the question about the debates in India itself, I think are... Uh, debates that sort of, you know, take the following lines or appear along the following lines. There is a school of thought that is, and this goes back to Mahatma Gandhi, uh, which is very skeptical about the desire for being a great power because of the damage that quest would do to both India's democracy and its attempts to construct a genuine democracy, as well as Uh, the consequences it would have for economic development. And this is linked to a general skepticism about the tyranny of modernity and, you know, ideas of that sort, which are very strongly associated with the Gandhian tradition. Uh, In other words, this school would basically argue that India should not pursue great power ambitions because it would really destroy the national project uh, which defines India which is to build a genuine liberal democracy that is respectful of the rights of its citizens and, you know, build prosperity at home and so on and so forth. I think there's a second school that is somewhat different. It recognizes the value of power, it recognizes the importance of power, particularly in an international system, but it sees other tasks as being more urgent. And the most important task that this school would argue is essentially India's internal transformation, 
Uh, and someone like Sunil Kilnani, who was not at all, uh, you know, a skeptic about international politics, who understands international politics very well, would still make the argument that there comes a point when the demands of international politics com- c- collide uh, with the demands of political and economic development. And therefore, what India ought to do is forget about the outside world for a moment and just focus on its you know, internal transformation. And if India can do that right, and, you know, Sunil would say, that itself is a form of power. It provides, uh, you know, an exemplary achievement uh, for the rest of the world uh, to emulate. So it's almost like a demonstrative power that arises simply from being able to do certain things right. And I think Sunil would make the argument that if India does that right, it can actually serve as a bridge uh, you know, between for many other countries in the system. I think a third school, which, you know, is associated, I think, most clearly with Sashi Tharoor, would, again, recognize that there are different forms of power. And again, consistent with an older Gandhian tradition and an Indian tradition, would argue that, you know, the export of soft power is sufficient. That is, India does not need to build up capabilities to coerce and dominate, Uh, it's already got a huge stable of assets which have the power of attraction. Uh, You see that uh, from everything from, you know, Bollywood to yoga. And if India concentrates on becoming an attractive power, again, by doing some things right at home, but then exporting these softer elements of power abroad, then that should satisfy India, at least at this juncture, in its in in its development and then of course you get the other extreme which is you know the quest for just straightforward muscularity the assumption that india's locked in a world of realpolitik and all the rest of this you know uh, seem like excuses not to compete in that world of real realpolitik and so i think uh, you know those who are sort of hardcore power advocates would say you know the soft stuff is good it's nice to have, but it'll come for free once India becomes a powerful, muscular, capable, great power, you know, like the United States, like China and the rest. So there is quite a spectrum, I think, of opinion with respect to the question of the desirability of being a great power. And I find that really striking. You know, to achieve great power, Ashley, uh, in the book, you argue that India fundamentally needs to do three things. It needs to sustain high rates of economic growth. It needs to build effective state capacity, and it needs to strengthen its liberal democracy. And I just want to ask you about the first of those pillars, economic growth. You know, you mentioned that India has time and time again prioritized distributional strategies before achieving the growth levels capable of sustaining them uh, are in place. Now, in some sense, uh, you know, I guess the question arises, is this simply the cost of being a democracy, right? So in political science, sometimes we talk about there being a democracy tax, because at the end of the day, either you cater to the median voter in society, or you'll be wiped out, right? And so there is a give and take, if you've already established universal suffrage, and a democratic framework, um, that you have to expend on welfare at the expense of of you know pure growth maximization is that a is that a fair argument i think it's a fair argument but it's not necessarily the complete argument uh democracy certainly 
you know, pushes politicians to adopt distributional strategies, again, for their own survival and their own success, right? But I think there is also a debate between top-down and bottom-up economic strategies. Uh, The classical model of growth always was that you focus on raising GNP, raising GDP, and once societies reach a certain threshold, then you can afford to sort of build up a welfare state from the surplus that the society has accumulated through its productive endeavors. But I think particularly what Prime Minister Modi is trying to do is something quite different. I don't think he's opposed to the idea of India pursuing growth, but he does not want to pursue growth simply through a top-down strategy where India grows and then redistribution in some systemic form takes place subsequently. What I think he's trying to do as a matter of economic strategy is to empower the base through a variety of distributionist palliatives, right? And this can be everything, as people have noted, from, you know, free bank accounts to electricity to cooking gas and so on and so forth. And the theory of the case, I think, is if you give people at the bottom the means to achieve some standard of living, you know, that is simply more than just subsistence, then you essentially enable them to join the marketplace as productive, you know, economic agents far more quickly than the alternative of a top-down strategy alone. And so I think his economic strategy is I'm going to directly attack the sources of poverty, you know, through this new welfareism, as as Arvind Subramaniam has called it. And the theory is that if they are, you know, they lead better lives through through enjoying, you know, these state-provided amenities, then their ability to actually make contributions in the marketplace increases. And so I I see this as more than just a political strategy. I think there is an implicit economic strategy as well. But certainly in the Indian case, uh, Modi, for both political and economic reasons, I think appears intent on attacking the problem both from the top and the bottom. And whether it'll succeed, you know, uh, we still have to wait and see. But to the degree that a theory seems to be discernible, I think that's the theory. Hey, Grant the Marshall listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant the Masha, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. You know, there's a sort of internal dimension of the economic strategy and then the external dimension. And you have long held and in, in, in various things that you've written that India needs to embrace global trade. It needs to exploit its comparative advantage and it needs to pursue further integration to global supply chains. Um, uh, but uh, in reality, uh, there, New Delhi has been... Uh, uh, persistently uh, discomforted with with trade openness, uh, right? Which does not necessarily, in your view, bode very well for boosting growth. 
In recent months, Ashley, I and many others, uh, I'm sure, have witnessed a shift, right? We have seen India conclude a free trade agreement with Australia. Its negotiators are at least back at the table talking with their interlocutors in the United Kingdom, the European Union. Uh, the Indians are actually blaming the United States for its inward-looking focus, uh, which, you know, the, sort of a, the, a reverse, uh, role reversal uh, of, of, the, of the usual play. So do you think that the political winds are changing in some real way on this? Well, I would say yes and no. And to understand what I think is happening, one needs to go back again to the economic strategies that were adopted in the 50s and the 60s. Unlike East Asia, uh, uh, East Asia grew on the back of export-led growth. The essence of the strategy was East, the East Asian economies were going to produce things fundamentally for markets abroad. By tapping those wealthier markets abroad, the revenues that would accrue to these economies would then be used for various domestic you know, strategies at home. India adopted a very different strategy. India chose to grow on the basis of domestic market expansion, not the tapping of foreign markets. To my mind, that is still fundamentally India's growth strategy today. And so even though India has shifted to a willingness now to countenance you know, free trade agreements, we need to be very careful in how we actually describe these agreements, even though they are notionally called free trade agreements. They are actually very shallow agreements. And they are designed primarily in order to enlarge India's export markets. It is not coupled with a greater willingness to open the domestic Indian market to imports from abroad. So in many ways, it's, they, are, they are trade agreements and they are freer trade agreements, but they are trade agreements that are focused on essentially creating a congenial you know, access for Indian exports. So in other words, I see these FTAs as being an improvement over the past where there was deep skepticism about foreign trade. But again, I see these as export-driven initiatives, which are still import-shy. To me, the, the real test of Indian openness is going to come in the following way. Are the agreements that India is signing forcing a reallocation of the domestic factors of production at home? I don't see that happening except very tepidly. And so when one makes a judgment about whether India has now sort of, you know, is beginning to think more enthusiastically about foreign trade, I would say that the jury is still out on that one. Uh, their interest in foreign trade is still instrumental. There is no free trade conviction that I can detect uh, in the government. And it is really designed to keep one of the four motors of growth, which is exports, uh, you know, to find more congenial opportunities for Indian exports. And so if you look at all of India's trade agreements, uh, the hardest part of the trade agreements are always in non-enforceable chapters. 
And uh, the enforceable chapters are the shallowest part of the agreements. Now, I still think it's an improvement over the past where India didn't want to touch foreign trade, let alone FTAs, uh, in any serious way other than, you know, export promotion. So it's certainly an improvement, but I don't think India has crossed that bridge into a genuine uh, desire for external openness out of conviction yet. I mean, you, you use the word conviction, which I think is an is an interesting and apt word, right? Because it, it, it links to a larger point that you've made on the economy, which is a major obstacle remains a worldview that doesn't sufficiently appreciate the value of a free, flexible pricing system to regulate what you call the distribution of natural resources in a variety of domains, right? And so, in your opinion, is this the biggest binding constraint for achieving the kind of consistent, robust economic growth over a several-decade horizon? Is it really ideas at the end of the day? It is. I mean, it goes back again to India's early post-independence record. There was always a skepticism about markets. And in the Nehruvian period, the belief was that markets would favor the wealthy, they would impoverish the poor even more, and therefore the real allocation mechanism had to be the state. And so markets were tolerated because it was impossible to sort of emulate the Soviet experiment of having a completely controlled economy, uh, but they were tolerated. They, nobody saw a virtue in markets. And I think that legacy of that, uh, that period still remains which is what explains, you know, the contested uh, path uh, to reform. Every reform that involves a deepening or an extending of markets is a highly contentious affair in India. Uh, people don't like markets. People want someone to choose winners and someone to choose losers. Uh, it's either, you know, the state that likes to do this for itself or sometimes, you know, monopolies or oligopolies in India. So. The idea that you would have, you know, markets that are disciplined uh, is an idea that still, you know, has not uh, exactly taken root. Now, linked to this, there's a parallel problem, right, which is institutions, uh, which is you can't just have markets operating without an institutional framework. But you don't feel the compulsion to build regulatory institutions, to build disciplining institutions, if you don't trust the environment within which these institutions are supposed to operate to begin with. So then that becomes a double whammy, which, you know, now India slowly you know, recognizes the problem and it's slowly trying to deal with it. But, you know, the, uh, the inherited uh, burdens are so great that this will be a very slow and long-drawn process, uh, you know, at the best of times. You know, you talked about uh, Arvind Subramaniam earlier and, and, and New Welfareism. I mean, Arvind, as a good friend of both of us, you know, is, is very good at uh, at coming up with these catchy buzz, uh, buzz, you know, catchphrases, uh, including stigmatized capitalism, right, is another one, which is precisely what you've described, right, this idea that if you have free markets take place without the proper institutional governance framework, then that creates uh, an even deeper skepticism than you might have had before <laughs> about the ability of the market to actually be uh, a net positive for the population at large. 
Absolutely, because what you get then are, you know, magnified distortionary effects, right? And the people whom you have to convince that markets are actually good have even less reason to be convinced if all they see are the pathologies of the market, uh, but none of its benefits. So I just want to quickly kind of ask you about the other two pillars. You know, we, we talked a little bit about economic growth. I want to ask you a little bit about the quest to build a more effective state. Uh, one of the discussions that was very interesting in this chapter was uh, this idea that, you know, you have had this very fractured elite uh, throughout uh, post-independence history, and, and that this has placed constraints on what you called national goal setting, right? Now, at the same time, we know, uh, and again, coming back to what we just discussed, there are institutional infirmities that make executing on national goals very onerous. So I'm wondering, you know, how do we think about the causal arrow? Is it the, the fractured elite not being able to set up proper institutions and, and institutional failures and leading to more fractures? You know, how do you think about these two variables? I mean, I think it that is an empirical question in some ways, because you can argue the causality cogently in either direction. Right. Uh, and so you have to, I think, look specifically at either particular sectors or particular industries uh, and then derive an empirically uh, you know, grounded conclusion. I think what can be said in the abstract simply is that this is viciously reinforcing, right? Once you, once you have weak institutions, then you cannot, you do not have mechanisms uh, for elites to sort of reconcile their competition in ways that are disciplined or productive. And that in turn, then of course, weakens the institutions further and so on and so forth. But I think that is the best one can say at this high level of sort of abstraction. But if one looks, you know, more microscopically, say at particular industries or particular sectors of this, of state behavior or economic behavior, then you might be able to get a more granular uh, sort of theory of, you know, which direction the arrows actually move. Uh, but I think that really requires an empirical uh, examination on a case-by-case -case basis. I, I want to ask you about military power, because that's something that you spent a lot of time thinking about, writing about. It's the sort of third pillar. And, and you, you present this puzzle, which is that, you know, by any measure of raw power, you know, you could look at territory, size, population, economic capability, uh, India towers above most of its neighbors, right? At the same time, however, uh, it's not been able to translate this kind of dominance in kind of quantitative terms into political hegemony, even in its own backyard, where it is literally a, a giant amongst its neighbors. I'm wondering if you could reflect a little bit on why you think it is that India has not been able to translate one into the other. So I think that there are two plausible reasons uh, for this. One is that India's uh, military capabilities are uh, very impressive in the aggregate. But when one looks essentially at operational effectiveness, there are still very, uh, you know, sort of unsolved problems, uh, persistent weaknesses. So even though India has gross military capabilities or advantages in gross military capabilities, being able to utilize those capabilities flexibly uh, to secure certain objectives quickly, right? Because that's what military force 
does best. I mean, you use it when you want quick results, you know, on the battlefield and so on and so forth. That is where the Indian military has not quite delivered. And at the end of the day, actually, these material capabilities, I think, are linked to ideational constraints. And the ideational constraint is that the Indian state has never thought of military forces in a way that early modern European states thought of military forces, which is these are usable instruments of state power. And the more you refine the instrument and the capabilities of that instrument, you can actually use it to attain certain political outcomes. In that sense, India still thinks of military forces primarily as instruments of defense. So they exist simply to prevent others from coercing the Indian state. Their primary utility is not for use to coerce others. Now, India, of course, will use military forces against other states when compelled to, but for a state that enjoys its gross military advantages, India has actually been very reticent with respect to the use of military power. Uh, it has used military power when required only in the last resort and often only when it has been attacked. And so I just think that the Indian state does not prioritize military instruments because it does not think of military instruments as a normal instrument of statecraft. In, in the Indian sort of elite consciousness and political consciousness of the political leadership, Military instruments are normal instruments of statecraft. You use them only when you've run out of all other choices and, you know, uh, can't do much else. And so when you have that sort of an attitude, you know, you don't invest in the military. And you certainly don't invest in a super efficient military, which is designed to procure, you know, sort of operational objectives or whatever in, 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 in quickly. You just don't do that. And even today, so you have a huge Indian military, uh, which is characterized by enormous mass. But, you know, I, I, I do a thought experiment, for example, every now and then, which is, can this Indian military, for example, defeat Pakistan, say, in two weeks or three weeks? Pakistan being the most capable state, right? And the answer to that is no. It would be very hard for the Indian military to pull off a, you know, a meaningful victory over Pakistan in a short time frame. Now, it might be able to do that against some of the smaller states. You know, India's never tried that. But again, I think the frictions, uh, you know, in the face of success would still be considerable. I don't want to give short shrift to a very important topic, which you come to at the end of the chapter, which is liberal democracy. And here, of course, is where there is a lot of pushback in the Indian system on two components. First, on the desirability of the liberal part of liberal democracy. And number two, on the idea that there has been any uh, regression or backsliding at all. In fact, that is a very live debate that is playing out uh, uh, today. Uh, could you not, in fact, make the argument that, look, a more a liberal, less democratic India is perfectly compatible with uh, an India that is able to enhance its power status on the global scene, you know, I mean, because I would submit, these are my words, not yours, that, you know, India has grown more illiberal in recent years. And certainly it's, you know, star uh, on the global scene is not dimmed at all. 
So let me answer that in two ways. Uh, it is possible for an illiberal India to achieve its great power ambitions in principle. Much is going to depend on two variables, uh, the internal consequences of illiberalism and the external reception uh, to that illiberalism. If the internal consequences of rising illiberalism are greater social incoherence and greater demands on the state for order maintenance at home, then those are resources that are not going to be available for application externally. And so that could be a genuine friction on uh, the path of India's rise. The second is the external receptivity. Thus far, I think the external receptivity has not had a consequential effect, partly because of the character of evolving global geopolitics where the most important great power, the United States, sees India as an important asset in the competition with China and therefore is less inclined to pay attention to the internal transformations that are taking place in India. In fact, most U.S. policymakers, I don't think, uh, like or care very much for these transformations, uh, care in the sense of they're not, uh, you know, they, they don't they don't arrest their attention given the other challenges posed by China. And so are willing to live with those, you know, with the aberrations and the sort of uh, the discomfiture that they may face with the changes in India. But were that to change, then, of course, there would be other kinds of consequences. Actually, I want to just conclude by asking about process. You know, uh, this book uh, has wonderful chapters about higher education, about labor markets, about trade, about, uh, you know, uh, defense capabilities. The list goes on and on and on. Um, uh, and there are a lot of reform ideas in this book, right? Uh, you note at the end of your chapter that this particular government has embraced, explicitly embraced, this idea of creative, persistent incrementalism, right? Um, and you write that you are skeptical that this is going to be sufficient to achieve the kind of great power status that Prime Minister Modi claims he desires. Now, uh, on the flip side, we know that India has a great many veto players, right, uh, that make big bang changes very difficult to attain. And so, you know, is it reasonable to conclude on the basis of this, actually, that, look, perhaps we need to just all take a breath, lower our ambition somewhat for India's rise, taking into account its democracy, its diversity, its intellectual heritage, material conditions, and so on and so forth. I mean, is that a fair sort of... <laughs> assessment to make at the end of the day? I think that is an assessment that people will make at the end of the day uh, because it, ha it, it factors in explicitly the variable of time, right? It's not that India will not grow, but the question is, will India grow fast enough on timelines that matter within the current horizons of international politics, right? And India that becomes a great power, you know, 100 years from now, will be interesting, you know, in the world historical sense, you know, when history books are written. But it's not exactly a consolation for the United States today 
given the challenges that we face in Asia and so on and so forth. So if the end result of all of India's complexities is an incrementalism that does not produce rapid growth, then I guess, you know, we will just have to learn to live with reality. And I think sooner or later, if that is the trend, and if that trend is, in fact, the sort of equilibrium, you know, path, then I guess even the United States will adjust, you know, its ambitions and its expectations of India. I think right now there is the hope that for all the incrementalism, you know, the prime minister's ambitions will take him in the direction of making bold, uh, of making bold moves. And, you know, in the last few years, we've seen a few bold moves, right? Unfortunately, all of them ended up being stillborn in the sense that they were not brought to completion. And I think that tells us two things. One, that he is certainly capable of doing bold things when pushed to it. Two, you can't take the fact that, you know, bold things are initiated as proof that they will finally be completed. And both those realities, which sort of tug in opposite directions, are things that we have to, you know, learn to live with. Well, I, I would add a, I would add a third category of, of bold decisions that had a vast uh, array of unintended consequences, like demonetization, for instance, sure. right? Where, sure. where, where you took a bold decision, but, but, but one would question perhaps it's the wisdom of, of, of that decision. Sure, sure. My guest on the show this week is my colleague, Ashley J. Tellis. He's the co-editor, along with Bibek Debroy and Raja Mohan, of a new book, Grasping Greatness, Making India Leading Power, published by Penguin India, available in bookstores, available online. It is a terrific read. And Ashley, I know that you know when you are pulling together a volume like this, you have only limited control over when the book actually arrives uh, into people's hands. But what a time, given that uh, India is... Uh, president now of the G20 and will lead the uh, uh, SCO uh, this year as well. And, and there's a lot of talk about whether India can take some of this space that China may be ceding due to China's own declining economy. So congrats on on the timing, even if it was unintended. And, and, and thanks for sharing your thoughts with us. Well, thank you so very much. I really appreciate being back on the show. And as you point out, Milan, this is a moment of opportunity from India for India. And, you know, we are all rooting for its success. And we just hope that that success comes to fruition. Grant Masha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review to help others find the show. Tim Martin is our audio engineer and Cliff Jayapranada is our executive producer. Production assistance comes from Nitya Love. Thanks for listening and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.